Thank you for joining us this week. Um, and for those watching online, welcome to you as well. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if you get out your sermon note sheets, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Jonah. Jonah is a four-chapter book, so we're on week three. That means we are in chapter three of Jonah this morning, and we're going to dive right back in, no pun intended, um, and we're going to pick up right where Josh left off. Um, for the uninitiated among us, a little recap, we begin the story of Jonah on the run, right? Jonah's given a specific mission from God to preach to the people of Nineveh and call them out for their heinous, terrible sin. Um, and Jonah, as a prophet to the nation of Israel, really isn't too keen on that idea. So he hatches this brilliant plan, right, to hop on a boat and go as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can get. We've got a map here that'll show you. Uh, he, he hops on a boat and goes to Tarshish, which is the furthest point in the world from Nineveh. Um, and he thinks that maybe if I can get away from the place God has called me to go, I can get away from God himself. Jonah should know better, right? He's read the scriptures, right? He, he has access to the Psalms, you know, where can I go from your presence? Neither height nor depth. Nor... Yeah, he, he knows that, or he ought to. Um, so God, in his gracious, loving kindness, sends a storm, a swirling tempest to put Jonah back on track, right? Demonstrating that he is indeed in control of the whole planet, right? There's nowhere you can run from the grace of God. But Jonah's still not convinced of God's message, uh, mission yet, so he decides that it'd be better to drown than ask for forgiveness. Jonah's got a thick head. Um, so he has these sailors throw him overboard, so God, again, in his gracious, loving kindness, decides to prove to Jonah that he, indeed, is the author of life, and he is the one who determines the day we will die, and he sends a giant fish to swallow up Jonah out of the depths, again, proving to Jonah that he is the one in control here. He's the one who's going to decide whether or not Jonah gets to die. And now, here we are in the beginning of chapter 3, and Jonah has been expelled uh, from the great beast's guts as the product of some fishy indigestion. It must have been a sight to behold. The prophet of God, slimy and covered in kelp, uh, probably more than a little smelly, right back where he started on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. No closer to Nineveh than he was back in chapter 1. You know, as a side note, this is a great example of why running from God never works. You're always going to end up further from where you started, and you might end up smelling like fish guts as a result. So don't run from God. It's not in your best interest, and it's not going to work out for you. You know, I recently I heard a, past, a story about a pastor who discovered something shocking about his wife. Uh, one Saturday morning, he was going and uh, cleaning out the closets uh, in his bedroom, and he came across this shoebox. And of course, he opens the shoebox, and inside he finds something really strange. Inside the box were five eggs, and next to those eggs was a pile of cash that amounted to like $5,000. And of course, as you might be if you found that amount of money next to a bunch of eggs in your closet, he was a little puzzled. So he decides to ask his wife, because wives know these kinds of things, what it was doing in the closet. So when his wife gets home, all of a sudden, uh, he, he pounces on her. He's like, hey, I found this in the closet. You wouldn't happen to know what this is. And the wife got a look of shock on her face, and she realized her, her secret was about to be revealed. She said, well, yes, dear, I, 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 do, I do know what that is. After we got married, I, I decided that after every sermon you preached, if it was a bad one, I would place an egg in the shoebox. <laughs> so the preacher reflected for a moment and thought to himself, eh, well, you know, we've been married quite a long time, and if there's only five eggs in the box, that must be a pretty good preacher, right? So he was, he was pretty satisfied with himself. But of course, as any 
preacher will. He let, uh, wouldn't let good enough alone. Um, so, of course, he, he asks his wife, curiosity getting the better of him. Okay, I, I understand the eggs, but what's with the cash? He said, oh, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I'd sell them. Before, before we get to our scripture today, has anyone ever been the victim of a bad sermon before? Yeah, if, if it's been here, you don't need to tell us. Uh, that's what we're going to get from our friend Jonah this morning, a really bad sermon. In fact, I think probably one of the worst sermons in the whole Bible. But as a result, or rather in spite of that terrible sermon one of the greatest revivals in history. We read this in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I mean, you're grateful for a God that gives second chances. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off His royal robes covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on the destruction he had threatened. Now, I don't know if you've gotten this from the story of Jonah so far. I know the story of Jonah is one a lot of us are very familiar with. But there's something fishy about Jonah. <laughs> I'm truly sorry for that. <laughs> and, and no, it's not the smell. See, if we dig a little deeper into the structure and style of this book, I think we'll begin to notice that there is more than meets the eye to the story of this particular prophet in the Bible. So in the spirit of being good students of the word and in in effort to rightly divide the word of truth, I, I want to humbly submit to you that there's more going on with Jonah than you think. I want to, for your consideration, present the idea that the book of Jonah is not about a fish. I know, I know, despite our common cultural understanding of the story and the pervasive influence of Sunday school flannel graphs, uh, this, uh, <laughs> this fish, which shows up in two out of the 46 verses of this book, is not the main thing God desires to communicate through his prophet Jonah. And in fact, uh, this might get me into a little more troubled waters, the life of Jonah and the story of his prophetic mission isn't really the point either. No, this is a story about God. This is a story about God's character. And to tell that story, he uses this mission to Israel's most hated enemy, the Assyrians. The story of the book of Jonah is ultimately about how we don't get to pick and choose who deserves God's mercy. And to tell that story, the author of Jonah uses some interesting stylistic storytelling features. And despite what you may have always believed, Jonah is the bad guy in this story. Now, before I lose every seasoned Bible scholar in the room, um, 
that doesn't mean this story isn't true. In fact, Jonah was without a doubt a very real prophet. He's referenced in other places in the Bible. And he certainly went on this mission to Nineveh. And God definitely has the power to summon any sort of large aquatic fish uh, that he wants to accomplish his purposes. And definitely Jesus' words in the New Testament corroborate this story. However, we have to remember that the way in which a story is told is very important. Right? The way in which a story is told conveys how the message is going to get across to the audience. And nowhere is that more apparent than here in Jonah chapter 3. The book of Jonah is written at a very interesting time in Israel's history. Uh, it's a period of time called the Divided Kingdom because the nation had divided into two kingdoms after a civil war a few generations ago. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and it consisted of ten of the tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah, uh, and it consisted of the other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The southern kingdom preserved the line of David and held the temple in Jerusalem. And the northern kingdom was, well, they were the bad guys. They were rife with idolatry and insurrection. And if you read through the book of 2 Kings, you'll learn that most of their rulers did not follow God. And that's true of the king when Jonah comes on the scene. His name was Jeroboam II, and we read about his reign in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 24 through 27. It says this, and really you could sum up his whole life in this one sentence. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He restored the border of Israel from Labo, Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah. Oh, there he is. Uh, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. This is a time of worldly success for Israel. They're prospering economically. The royal coffers are full. Militarily, they're racking up victory after victory. And their borders have expanded geographically to the largest extent since the reign of Solomon. On the other hand, though, small landowners are being forced off their farms as large, wealthy estate holders buy up their land to amass even greater estates. It seems people have forgotten God's commands and concern with how you're supposed to do business with your neighbor. The poor are exploited with heavy, crushing taxes and impossible interest rates are being tacked on to debts, a practice which was specifically forbidden in the covenant law. Beyond all of that, the very nature of the northern kingdom and northern religion is based on a corruption. God stated clearly that his sacrifices were meant to be only performed in the temple in Jerusalem. But these northern Israelites did not have access to the temple in Jerusalem. So they brought their sacrifices to Yahweh on all sorts of high places throughout the kingdom. They brought their sacrifices wherever they pleased, whether it was on the altar of a foreign god or not. And they tainted the pure worship of God by blending it with idolatry and sexual deviancy. The royal treasury was full, but they were spiritually bankrupt. And Jonah was their prophet. In fact, Jonah was the one who advised Jeroboam II on his military expansion campaign. And that made both Jonah and Jeroboam national heroes. They were bringing back the glory days of Solomon. Surely that meant God was on their side, right? We're God's covenant people after all, even though we don't really uphold our end of the covenant. But that's okay, right? God is abounding in mercy and 
Surely he understands a little bit of dalliance now and then. You know, we're only human after all. He'll be sure to uphold his end of the bargain, protecting us and blessing us and giving us favor over our enemies. And as long as we keep up the sacrifices, everything will be all right. But God, in his abounding mercy, doesn't erase them from the face of the earth. Right? This is not a, a statement of God's pleasure with the kingdom. This is God just barely holding back his judgment. Because he doesn't say he'll wipe them off of the face of the earth. Right? The Israelites mistook God's patience and slowness to anger for God's approval and favor. God had been abundantly merciful in withholding judgment from these chosen people. These people who were well aware of their God and what he required of them. And to the Israelites, Jonah was their man. Right? When he spoke, he delivered messages straight from God. That was the role of the prophet. And if Jonah's bringing messages of victory, that must mean God's on our side. Prophets in Israel had three main jobs. The first was they were the makers and the breakers of kings. It was up to the prophet to anoint a king, and it was up to the prophet to depose a king. It was their words that solemnified God's will for the king to rule. Second, they were agents of holy warfare. Prophets were to advise the king and his military commanders on when to fight and when not to fight. And then after the battle, what to do with the spoils of victory. And finally, prophets served as the guardians of the Mosaic faith and covenant. They spoke out against idolatry and, and worship of Baal. They condemned impure worship and called out those moral violations of the covenant, the human rights violations, the corrupt business practices, and sexual immorality. That last role is the one we tend to remember most of the prophets for. I go read through the minor prophets this week, and you'll find that to be the main thing you see in their writings. In fact, this is the thing that makes Jonah stand out from the rest of the prophets, and why I think Jonah is doing something different than the rest of the prophets. Typically, what you'll find in the writings of the prophets in the Bible are a collection of their best inspired sermons. And they're on different subjects at various times throughout their careers. So the prophets really read more like a selected sermons collection uh, than a biography of that particular prophet. But Jonah is different. Jonah is the only one of the prophets which is mainly a narrative story. Try this for yourself. Go read the book of Amos this week and attempt to find the plot. You're not going to find anything there. It is a bunch of sermons against a bunch of different people, and they're incredibly angry and pointed and direct. They're like put-your-feet-to-the-fire kind of sermons, full of graphic imagery and explicit instructions and a very clear message. It's not a very interesting story, though. Jonah, on the other hand, is completely different, which is why... I think the author of Jonah is doing something different with his book. This is what it says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So far, this is a reflection of what we've already read in chapter 1. Jonah is once again given a second chance to fulfill his calling. All he has to do is go and preach the message that God gives him for the people. So Jonah begrudgingly accepts his task this time. No doubt uh, he doesn't want a repeat of what happened the last time he disobeyed God. But as we're about to see, I don't think Jonah really wants to go to Nineveh. And if you were Jonah, you probably wouldn't either. Remember, as God's prophet during this time, his whole career had been made proclaiming victory over enemies and expansion of the national borders. He was Israel's prophet, not Assyria's. 
And he's had it pretty good as far as prophets go, right? A lot of prophets lived on the edge. Uh, you know, it's not easy always being the guy calling out the government and people for their sin. Um, people don't tend to like you if you're always pointing out what's wrong with them. But he seems to have been doing pretty okay for himself. You know, it's, it's fun being the guy that brings good news. But Assyria, they're Israel's worst enemy. And the city of Nineveh especially so. They had been oppressing Israel for centuries, always ready to pounce, ride in and fight and take whatever they wanted. But as Israel has been on the rise, Assyria has been on the decline. They had their own internal strife to deal with and uh, some of their own neighbors that kept pestering them. So Assyria has been leaving Israel alone for a while. And really, that's the reason why Israel has prospered under this king. But just because Jonah's people aren't currently fighting the Assyrians doesn't mean they've forgotten what those Ninevites are famous for. They were world-renowned for their cruelty in battle. They were a superpower of the ancient world. And they kept that up by inciting fear in their enemies. The heads on pikes outside of their city certainly reminded people of their gruesomeness. The gates of the city of Nineveh uh, measured seven miles in diameter. And Nineveh was just one city in a multiple city metropolis that served as the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This was one of the most well-fortified, wickedest places on the planet. But to Jonah's credit, at least this time, he obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Right? Verse 3 says Jonah obeyed the word and went to Nineveh. Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Here's where things get interesting. Because at some point during his 550-mile trek from the Mediterranean Sea to the city of Nineveh, Jonah repented of his repentance. However sincere that prayer in the belly of the fish may have been, Jonah never really wanted the Ninevites to repent from their sins. Because here in verse 4, he preaches the worst sermon in the Bible. <laughs> and trust me, I know a bad sermon when I see one. I preach a couple doozies myself. Um, I think Jonah here is being intentional in following his calling to the bare minimum so that he can say he did what God called him to do and then get out of there. How do we know it's a bad sermon? I've got a couple of reasons why. First of all, it is too short. Um, now, I know some of you might consider a short sermon like a blessing from on high, uh, but there is such a thing as too short. And at five words in the original Hebrew, uh, this one is far below the minimum uh, required. Some scholars who hold to a more traditionalist, positive interpretation of Jonah will try to explain away the brevity of his sermon as just a summary of what was said. And that might make sense, um, except there's no real textual evidence to believe that is true. And even so, when this was the case in ancient literature, when you summarized ancient speeches and such, uh, a much more complete version of the sermon would have been recorded. At least it would mention why Nineveh was being overthrown or who was doing the overthrowing. But we get none of that in Jonah's sermon. He's not really trying that hard. Uh, he, he only gets a third of the way into the city. It tells us that he goes a day's journey and proclaims. And then after that, he kind of just gives up. So one, it's too short. Two, he doesn't do that great of a job of preaching it to people. Three, and I think this one is pretty important, it's not what God told him to preach. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this time limit that Jonah has brought as a part of his message. To the, there's a time limit to the vague destruction that Nineveh was supposed to face. Where does this come from? It certainly wasn't explicitly stated to him by God. Uh, nowhere 
in what God told him to preach, did God specify that there would be a time limit. Read this back in in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, when God tells him to go. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before him, before me. Nowhere is Jonah told how long it will be before God will overthrow them. So where does this time limit come from? Well, good TV writers will tell you that in order to have suspense build up, you need to have a countdown or a time limit, right? This was the whole premise of that show, 24. It was always 24 hours. Um, You've seen this before, right? Only 30 minutes of oxygen left in the spaceship or five minutes left on this suitcase bomb to defuse it or uh, an hour until the asteroid hits. Time limits build suspense. But 40 days is a pretty long time for a time limit. Uh, In fact, 40 days is a common idiom in the ancient Near East for a long time. That's just what it meant, right? Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and Israel had plenty of time to go rebel and make golden calves, and there's a whole thing. Uh, Noah was in the ark, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, a long time. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. It was a long time. That's what 40 days means in the ancient Near East. It's a long time. You know, you could figure a lot out in 40 days. It's like the whole length of a self-help book. Uh, you, you can totally reinvent yourself in 40 days. You know, 40 days to a new you. Um, but nowhere in the word of the Lord that came to Jonah did God specify a specific time limit for Nineveh's destruction. It's not even in the King James Version. I know, I went back and read it. Um, so perhaps Jonah tells them a intentionally long time so his foreboding message would be taken less seriously. Either way, whether that's true or not, we have no way of knowing, adding or subtracting from the word of God is a big no-no, especially when the message is one like this. So, his sermon is really too short. He doesn't do that great of a job proclaiming it to people. And he makes up this weird time limit. Um, Fourthly, there is no call to action at all at the end of this message. Jonah gives his hearers no avenue for repentance. There's no altar call. There's no worship band that comes up to play afterwards softly. Um, In fact, there isn't even a hint that this uh, judgment might be avoided in any way. Uh, Nope, it is matter of fact. Nineveh will be overthrown. There's nothing you could do about it. Uh, Not that those nasty Ninevites would want to anyways. Jonah brings a message of doom and gloom, and there was absolutely no hope to be found. Worst of all, and I think this is really the clencher, he never once mentions the name of God. This is the final twist of the knife. He wants to leave these people so ignorant and helpless that they won't even know who to call on for help. He doesn't want these people to know his God. You know, the pagan sailors in chapter 1 at least got to know it was the Lord who was responsible for their trouble, right? Read it back in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, right? They asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? Because they knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. Now, in the Bible, anytime you see the Lord, I've got it highlighted here, that should stick out to you. See, it's, it's a translated Hebrew word, Adonai. And the word Adonai is in itself a stand-in for the divine name Yahweh. But here, in Jonah's message to the Ninevites, he never gives them an opportunity to hear the name of God. So what's the big deal about that? Go back with me to Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2. What's the promise that he makes to God before He's expelled from the fish. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, 
Salvation comes from the Lord. This is the key verse in all of Scripture. Salvation comes from Adonai. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. But Jonah leaves that part out of his message. It's heartbreaking. You want to know the really ironic thing about this? The author of Jonah throws in all of these little ironies to get his point across. The name of God is tied to the character of God. Indulge me for a second because this will all come back around. We've talked a lot already this morning about the Mosaic Covenant. Understanding that it is the foundation to getting the rest of what God is doing in the Old Testament. And really to understand what Jesus himself fulfills in the New Covenant. Let's read this in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, Adonai, said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first one, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Anyone recognize what's going on here? Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston, walking down the mountain. Uh, The Ten Commandments. Uh, As you know, Ten Commandments are very important. Uh, So, Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. He carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and for the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Did you catch that? This here is the basis for all of Israel's history as a nation. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments to chisel out onto stone tablets, and it represents the law, the people's end of the covenant. And to seal that covenant, he reveals his glory before Moses' very eyes. And Moses watched as God passed before him. All the while, God proclaims his name, and he reveals what it means. The Lord, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the character, the very nature of our God. And it's all wrapped up in his name. He finishes by reaffirming his promise to the people, God's end of the covenant. He will do wonders through them. And God will receive glory among the nations because of the great things he wants to do through the people of Israel. And this is what Jonah wants to leave out of his message. See, Jonah knows that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving of wickedness. He just can't risk that kind of God on the Ninevites. Because what if God forgave my enemies? Well, if God forgave my enemies, then I would have to, too. Mm. And this is just about when Jonah's plan backfires. Because the Ninevites repented anyways. 
right? They, they've heard the worst sermon in the world, and because of God's Holy Spirit drawing them to himself, they repent in sackcloth and ashes. They exhibit the right response to the word of the Lord, right? The, the Ninevites believed God. Yeah. A fast was proclaimed, and from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued. By the decree of the king and his nobles, don't let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Repentance is the right response to the word of the Lord. Yes. So what exactly is repentance? It's a, it's a Hebrew word. It means it's shuv. Um, and it's not just saying Sorry. Right? No, repentance is a little more involved than that. It involves a complete turnaround. Yes. And the doorway to repentance, to turning your life around, is the right attitude of the heart. A, a posture of the heart called contrition. Right? To be contrite. Uh, contrite is a word we get from the Latin, which literally means to be crushed to pieces. Now, religion would say contrition is a ritual that you perform or a formula that you repeat or an emotion you work up. But here's what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Godly sorrow, contrition, it, it inspires the need to change. It, it motivates us to take action in uprooting our sin, and it emboldens us to stand firm in not letting that sin take root again. Yes. It prepares us to make things right and deal with the consequences of our sin, and it allows us to confess our sins to the Father. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, confession is coming into agreement with God that what we did was wrong. I admit my faults and I receive forgiveness. But if I simply name my sin, agree with God that what I did was wrong, but plan to do the same thing next week, my confession is false. I've turned something sacred, God's path to spiritual restoration, into a ritual without reality. It's mocking God. And frankly, I think to do so is just as offensive as the sin I was confessing. God is looking for genuine, contrite hearts. Hearts like David had in Psalm 51. After being confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan... By the way, Nathan is a good example of what a prophetic message ought to be. Uh, David exhibits genuine godly sorrow. He writes this in Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It seems almost intuitively that the Ninevites got this part exactly right. And we know, of course, that they did so because their hearts were being drawn by the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot 
They didn't know, right? They didn't know exactly who to call on. The Hebrew word used in this portion of the chapter for God is a generic term, which means Elohim. Um, It's a generic term for God. It is not the divine name. They don't know what God they're calling out to. They don't know who God is. They just know they're calling out to God. So they don't know everything. They don't get everything exactly right. But they do demonstrate their recognition for repentance. From the greatest to the least, they all put on sackcloth. It's an ancient mourning ritual practiced by many cultures, and it signifies their great sorrow. Now, typically, uh, sackcloth was, was like burlap. It's a coarse fabric made out of goat or camel hair. Um, but unlike burlap, and I'm sorry for putting this image in your head, uh, it wasn't worn like a sack. Um, it was most often fashioned into a type of loincloth. Uh, so I'll let that be up to you to imagine what that looked and felt like. Um, great sorrow, indeed. Uh, I think the king of Nineveh really typifies the, the right response to God's word, what it ought to be. Here he is, a king, and watch what he does when the word of the Lord reaches him. Right? When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is one of those points in the narrative where the author is really trying to draw your attention to something. Let's compare Jonah's response to the word and the king's response. Right? Jonah is the chosen prophet of God with access to all of the holy scriptures. And when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, when God calls Jonah with a mission, he went down to Joppa. When he got on the boat, he went down below deck. And then he went down into the sea, and then he sunk down into the belly of the fish. If you don't know, going down is a spiritual decline. It's a bad thing. But the pagan king, with little to no knowledge of the Hebrew God, when the warning came to him, he got up. He started moving in the right direction. He rose from his throne, his seat of authority and power, and he took off his royal robes. The thing which identified him as the king, he surrendered his identity and his positional authority, and he joined with the people in solidarity and contrition. He humbled himself and put on sackcloth and sat down in the dust. He exhibits godly sorrow. Jonah half-heartedly obeyed, trying to do the bare minimum to skirt by God's requirements. But the king did everything he could think of to repent. Even the cows fasted in sackcloth. I don't know about you, but have you ever um, heard when a cow misses their meal time? They will let you know. Um, so imagine an entire nation of cattle who haven't eaten in three days. The sound that must have arose from Assyria was surely one of great sorrow. Jonah came to Nineveh and preached a message completely devoid of the mercy which has been so lavishly poured out in his own life. Remember, it was only by the mercy of God that he didn't wipe out Israel for their sins. It was only the mercy of God that Jonah was given a second chance to follow God's calling. But Jonah only desired destruction. The king, on the other hand, had no reason to expect mercy. His people were cruel and violent and merciless. But by the provenient grace of the Holy Spirit drawing his heart, he placed his hope in a God whose compassion outweighed punishment. He placed his ignorant hope in a God who might relent after seeing godly sorrow. Little did he know 
The pagan king understood the heart of God better than the prophet who had studied the scriptures his whole life. The king correctly put his faith in God's response to repentance. God relents when people repent. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring the destruction he had threatened. To relent means that there is something to relent from. And this takes us to two aspects of God's character which must be held in balance. His justice and his mercy. God's justice is a, a topic which makes a lot of people uncomfortable, especially in our modern world. We would rather focus on the God who is love than the God who is just. And when we do wrestle with God's justice, we tend to make excuses for it. Right? Well, there is evil in the world that needs to be punished. Rarely do we ever point that mirror back on ourselves to realize we are just as deserving of God's justice as any other evildoer. Sin must be punished. On the other hand is God's mercy. In Ezekiel chapter 18, we learn of God's desire to relent. He says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. God's mercy is a topic we love to talk about. It seems to be the most attractive part of the gospel. God freely gives out his grace, and in his mercy he relents from punishment. We love this part of God, except for when he offers this mercy freely to everyone. That part seems a little unfair, right? Like, like God is derelict in his duty to punish the evildoer, right? God, if you give mercy to the person that hurt me, that's really not right. But that's what the gospel is all about. Unless the gospel is for everyone, it isn't good news. If anyone repents and believes, they are just as deserving of God's forgiveness as any one of us. Unfortunately, Nineveh's story ends on a sour note. Here's the tragedy of Nineveh's revival. The book of Nahum is written about a century after the events described in Jonah, and it records God's divine judgment that was to come on Nineveh and all of Assyria because of their sins, the same sins that grieved God's heart in the first place. This is what it says in Nahum 1, 7, and 8. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Nineveh's repentance was not long-lasting. Maybe a generation or two. How quickly we repent of our repentance. But here, I don't think Nineveh's failure was because their repentance was insincere. Rather, I think it was a failure of discipleship. Jonah was invited to join God on the greatest mission of mercy, to set off the greatest citywide revival ever seen on the face of the earth up until that point. But he chose to hold on to his anger and prejudice, withholding from them the very name of God. He failed to preach the whole counsel of Scripture, But even so, the Ninevites had a better understanding of God's character than Jonah would even tell them. They instinctively hoped in God's mercy, the same mercy that Jonah detested. They knew God better than the prophet. But Jonah decided the Ninevites weren't deserving of God's mercy. He was perfectly content with God forgiving him of his grave sin But Nineveh didn't deserve the same mercy. They were outside of the covenant. They weren't special. 
Jonah knew what it meant to be chosen, but he forgot why he was chosen. The purpose of God's covenant relationship with Israel was to be a light to the world and a blessing to all nations. Because God wants everyone to be saved. But because Jonah didn't follow through with his calling, the revival would not last. This is the whole message of the book of Jonah. We are not the ones who get to decide who is worthy of God's forgiveness. Christ already decided that for us on the cross. When he died once and for all, every human sin was nailed on the cross with him. Now, our only obligation is to repent and believe and proclaim the good news. Let's pray. There's a couple of ways I think this message might be hitting you this morning. Perhaps uh, you're one that's still going your own way in life. Today, you can turn around. God is ready and willing to welcome you with open arms. There is no sin too great that he will not forgive you of when we come to him in genuine godly sorrow and confess it to him. Repentance can start today. It's not about the ritual or the words you say, but the attitude of your heart. Coming together with God, admitting to yourself and to him that you've sinned and it was wrong. And asking for his forgiveness. He's faithful and just to forgive us when we confess. Believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sin and confess him as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you're more like Jonah. You've been half-heartedly obeying God about something in your life. You have the opportunity today to wholeheartedly surrender and give your complete yes to God. I pray right now the the Holy Spirit is beginning to place names on your hearts of people in your life that have never heard a full gospel message before. Give them that opportunity. Share with them the God who has so mercifully moved in your life. You don't need to be a Bible scholar or an evangelist to tell others about what God has done in your life. Don't hold back your testimony. Oh God, may we learn from this lesson in your word. May we be quick to repent wholeheartedly and quick to obey wholeheartedly. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Create in us a new heart. Give us strength and peace. Let us be agents of your mercy and grace to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Forgive us. Make us new. Help us to proclaim your gospel to a world that needs to hear it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you need someone to pray with you, we'll have our prayer partners up here at the front. And... uh, For the rest of you, go be blessed, enjoy your holiday weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.